0: Good morning, my name's Rob, it's great to be with you, and it's great to be introducing our new series, Real Hope. So hope is one of the major defining characteristics of New Testament Christianity, and it's the reason why we renamed ourselves Hope Church about six years ago, um, because everyone understands that we all need hope, and we want this church to be a church that is for everyone. So, yet yeah, 2020 has been a bit of a strange year hasn't it, so far? And there's an interesting verse in the Old Testament that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I think that's how a lot of people are feeling at the moment, that because things have been put onto pause or hold or knocked back. There's a lot of sense of frustration and disappointment and hopelessness, a sense of despair about the future. So what do we do? Do we just sort of be optimistic and uh, put on a happy face? despite the challenges of COVID-19. Well, no, that's, that's false hope. That's not real hope. That's sort of um, not facing the realities of things. So uh, it's interesting that in the Bible, Paul says to Timothy to tell rich people, wealthy people, not to put their hope in riches, in wealth, because it's so uncertain. And I think some of us have felt for the first time, that actually things like losing a job, being on furlough, um, having reduced salaries, even losing jobs, um, you've felt the reality of actually the uncertainty of wealth and people are looking around for another source of hope. Well, my encouragement to you is to look to the Bible. So the Bible says we get hope from somewhere else, a different source that we can tap into. So the word hope simply means an expectation or anticipation of something in the future. So we, say, we use it quite vaguely, we say, well, I hope this will happen, I hope that will happen, but we don't really expect it to. Well, but when the Bible talks about hope in the New Testament, it talks about something that's much more solid, certain and sure, something that is rock solid. So it talks about being a better hope, a certain hope, a living hope, something that will sustain us through the trials and difficulties of life. This hope can be like an anchor for our soul, something that keeps us safe in the storms of life. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 23, that even though when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because you are with me. God can be with us in life. And that's the hope that doesn't perish, spoil or fade. So if you're watching this today and you you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian as yet, and maybe you've, you heard what Robin was saying earlier and thinking, yeah, no, that was my view. That's my view of Christianity. I just don't think there's anything in it. Well, I want to encourage you to listen today because... This hope in Christ is available for you. And in this new series, we're gonna be looking at how anyone can access and experience this sure hope for themselves. So today we're gonna to start by looking at Thomas and how he became sure about Jesus. So we see that Thomas is listed in all the New Testament accounts of Jesus's life. Um, but it's John's account where you really see him come to life, as it were. And so he's mentioned in three occasions. So first of all, in John chapter 11, uh, you get the situation where the disciples have had to leave Jerusalem because of the threat of uh, persecution from the religious leaders. So they've gone back over to the Jordan. And then they hear the news that Lazarus has died, which is a tragedy. And they say, um, "Well, we need to go back. And Thomas says this. In John 11 verse 16. Let us also go that we may die with him. So actually the first time you see Thomas he's brave Thomas. He's not doubting Thomas as he's become known. So he was prepared to go and obviously he's got a bit of a negative mindset there. He doesn't think it's going to work out well but he's still prepared to go and follow Jesus. So the next time we see uh, Thomas is in John chapter 14 where Jesus has just been explaining that he's about to leave them and that where he's going, they can't follow. And Peter's saying, well, we'll follow you to the ends of the world. Um, And Thomas asks this question. He says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? So here he's like bold, Thomas. He's speaking up the questions that are on other people's minds saying, well, how can we know the way? And Jesus gives him an amazing response. He says this, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. But I like Thomas in these accounts. He's honest, he's outspoken, he's maybe an independent thinker. But then we come to the, uh, John chapter 20, which is probably the most famous uh, description of Thomas. So let's read this together. So it says this. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. So Thomas moves from being doubting Thomas here to believing Thomas. So, how can we become sure that Jesus really is the Saviour? So, I'm going to look at three things with you uh, the authenticity of Jesus. And you see how Thomas said, How can we know the way? We're going to look at the evidence. Of the resurrection and Thomas at one point says I will not believe and then we'll talk about the importance of personal experience where Thomas says my Lord and my God. So first of all then the authenticity of Jesus. See Thomas asked this question well how can we know the way and like many in our modern world a bit like Robin said earlier they just simply don't get it How can you know that Christianity's got any truth in it at all? Surely the stories have been made up and changed down through the years. How can we know there's any truth in it at all? Well, the first thing I'd say to you is this, that there's evidence, as Robin actually said himself, there's evidence outside of the Bible for the existence of Jesus. So I'm just going to look at three of these historians with you. So first of all, there's a guy called Josephus. And he was a Jewish historian. He was born in AD 37, and he writes about the Jewish people for the Roman audience. So he's Flavius Josephus. And he talks about Moses and then moves all the way to modern times and Pilate and describes how uh, they were, he really harshly treated the Jewish people. And then he comes on to Jesus and he writes this, he says this in his account, Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. So that's one of the things he says. He says that disciples reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion And that many Jews and people of other nations became his disciples." The second historian is Tacitus, so he was born in AD 56 and uh, Tacitus refers directly to Christ to his being executed by Pontius Pilate and and the existence of early Christians in Rome. And there's another Roman historian, Suetonius, who was born in around AD 69, and he writes at the end of the first century and talks about disturbances caused because of Christ and also about the punishment of Christians by Nero. So that's the first thing, there's evidence for the authenticity of Jesus, that's the first thing. But the second thing is in the accuracy of the New Testament documents, and a lot of people don't realise this. So they think, well, it's all been changed down the years, how can we really know what we have now is what was written by the disciples? So... Let me explain this. Imagine if I wrote the Gospel of Rob and hundreds of years in the future uh, the original copy that I've written has been worn out and uh, you come across there are lots of other copies that are available that have been made of my original copy. It's a bit like a tree with a, a trunk and branches so you imagine it's lots of copies have been made but if you check all those copies and they all match each other exactly, then you know what the original source was. Well, if you look at the New Testament like that, then we know exactly that what the disciples wrote is exactly what we have. So so certain fragments of the New Testament, even John's Gospel, are in a very short time gap, within a 25 to 50 year uh, time gap from when they were originally wrote. And then we have whole manuscripts within a couple of hundred years of the entire New Testament. And there are actually 5,000 Greek copies, 10,000 Latin copies, and another 9,300 partial copies of manuscripts. There's a huge wealth that confirms the accuracy of the New Testament. But even if you didn't have any copies of the Bible, you can actually recreate the Bible from what the early church leaders wrote in their letters. So actually, for example, Clement, Uh, wrote a letter to Corinthians in AD 95, and he cites in his letter the Gospels, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter. And so if you take these early church writings, and actually there's 86,000 quotes from these early church fathers, you can recreate the whole of the New Testament except for about 20 verses. So that's just to say that the authenticity, the historical authenticity of the Bible is unbelievably and accurate. So we know that what they wrote is what we have in our hands. So well, then you have to get onto the authenticity of the message. So what is the authentic message of the New Testament? It's that Jesus is the Son of God, the savior of the world. And I'm just going to pop up a verse here from 1 John four, it says this: "We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the savior of the world." Or well, as we looked at earlier, Jesus replied to Thomas when he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. It's an amazing response. And what he means is it's more than just Jesus taught true things. It's that he himself is the truth. He is the way that we reconnect back to God. See, it's interesting earlier on in John's Gospel when he says about his teaching, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, that the religious leaders get very annoyed with him and they say, we're not slaves of anybody. And then he goes on and says that before Abraham was born, I am. And this made them even more angry because they knew that that was the name that Moses had been given by God when he was told to go and rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. So what does the word salvation mean? Well, the word salvation means bringing into a spacious place. And it, This includes the idea of uh, freedom from limitation, from factors that constrain and confine. So if we're honest about ourselves, our true condition, that we're flawed, limited human beings. We make mistakes all the time. In fact, the Bible puts it like this. The good I want to do, I do not do. The wrong I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. And if you're honest with yourself, you're the same as me. We do things we've, we know are wrong, and that's what the Bible calls sin. And it has this controlling, constraining effect and limits people's lives. So I've had people say to me, I have an addictive personality. Well, that's exactly right. That is what Jesus says, that wrongdoing, sin, if you like, has a controlling effect on our lives. And the reason Jesus went to the cross was to make a way to remove the damaging effects of sin in terms of our relationship with God and access to God but also it's controlling nature in our lives so Jesus came to empower us and free us to live a hope-filled new life this is really good news this is real hope and it's completely opposite to how people often think about Christianity as something and as a negative thing that's going to rob them of joy and peace actually it's the source of joy and peace for people's lives so this is the authentic Jesus. This is the authentic message that he offers real hope for you. But is there only truth to back up this claim. Well, we're going to come on to the second thing here, the evidence of the resurrection. Now, obviously there's lots of evidence we've looked at already, but if I had to pick and say, look at one thing in particular, I'd say, look at the evidence around the resurrection. It's very compelling. So in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about how The scriptures prophesied that the Christ the Messiah would have, Jesus would have to die for our sins, be buried and then raised on the third day. So this is the core thing. This is the thing that people often they Christianity. The problem with Christianity is that people get distracted by the kind of the exterior packaging. They think, I don't like that. I'm not interested in that. But if you get to the real message, it's incredible. And so I encourage you to look into it for yourself. And the evidence around the resurrection is particularly powerful. So in Acts it says this, that God has given us proof by raising him from the dead. So this is proof not just for Christians, this is proof for everyone who needs to hear this message. And Paul argues it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ hasn't been raised then the Christian faith is in vain, it's meaningless. If we hope in Christ we should be pitied more than anybody else, The truth really does matter but the point is this that christ has been raised and so we have a strong and sure hope an eternal hope yet many have a mindset as i said that kind of discounts the resurrection because of its miraculous nature but i want to encourage everyone listening to have an open mind about this so if you approach the evidence of the new testament without prejudging it and just keep an open mind the most logical and reasonable conclusion is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. So first thing I want to just point out is that uh, Luke, well, the, the disciples struggled to believe it themselves. So if you think, well, the resurrection is amazing. It's too incredible to believe. Well, that was their response. And actually, it says this in Luke 24, 11, that when the women came, they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. So this was the not just Thomas's reaction, this was all of the disciples' reaction to the testimony of the women. And actually, this is one of the amazing details, uh, is about the fact that women were the first to see Jesus. You see, the testimony of women was not something that was... Popular in that culture at that time, and Josephus concern, confirms this in his writings that the testimony of women and servants should not be used in court. So they wouldn't include this detail that it was the women who first saw Jesus and held him, unless it was a true account. Another detail of this number of these different appearances, he appears Jesus appears to individuals. So he appears to Peter and James on their own. He appears to the two on the road to the Emmaus. And they have a protracted discussion with jesus about the whole of the old testament scriptures and then he ends up breaking bread with them in the book, in the bit we read earlier you have an encounter that was without thomas with the ten of them and then another encounter where thomas is there in luke's gospel there's an amazing kind of physical nature of the encounter because they don't believe he's real they think he's a ghost and so he has to show them his hands and his feet there's another account of over 500 people seeing him on a mountainside, most of whom were still alive when Paul writes his first letter to the Corinthians. Luke summarises it like this there were many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days that he was alive. So these appearances happened in different places at different times, indoors, outdoors, there was prolonged discussion, there was physical interaction, and yet they stopped. So it didn't keep on happening. People didn't keep on experiencing this. It's a a very interesting detail. And there's some other details I want to give you. And I, I love this stuff. So the evidence of the empty tomb. Well, actually, it wasn't empty entirely because they say they saw collapsed grave clothes. Both the head part and the body part were collapsed. The tomb belonged to a specific wealthy individual called Joseph of Arimathea. So they knew exactly whose grave it was. The religious authorities were nervous that Jesus had said, after three days, I will rise again. So they asked him to set a guard. And Pilate says, set a guard and make it as secure as possible. And they put a seal over the tomb to make sure it's not broken into. The next detail is that the apostles went to their death saying, boldly proclaiming that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. This is the most compelling piece of evidence because what other logical explanation is there for what the disciples said and the fact they were prepared to die stating that they believed that Jesus was risen from the dead. So this is the evidence of the resurrection and it's just a small part of it. There's lots more you can look at but hopefully that helps you some of the details around the evidence of the resurrection. And then finally, I want to look at the importance of personal experience. See, ultimately, this was a really personal encounter for Thomas. It seems that Thomas had been absolutely devastated by the crucifixion. They all were devastated by the crucifixion, seeing Jesus die on the cross, and yet he wasn't there with them on that first appearance time. So I get the feeling that he was trying to process things on his own. That he just and when they tell him. They've seen Jesus. He just can't process it. It just doesn't make sense to him. He can't believe it. Surely that's not true. So the fact that Jesus then specifically comes and meets with Thomas shows his personal interest in Thomas and that he'd heard his request. So he says, you know, here's the uh, holes in my hands. Here's the hole in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas then says, my Lord and my God. It's one of the greatest statements of faith in the New Testament. So I want to call him Believing Thomas. In fact, it's recorded that Thomas went on. uh, He's there in the upper room. He's there on the day of Pentecost. And he becomes one of the greatest witnesses in the early church and plants churches in India and all around. And it's an amazing thing. And he went to his death saying that Jesus had risen from the dead. And the other incredible personal experience that uh, goes through is Paul. So Paul was there on the stoning of Stephen, who was one of the most effective early church communicators, and he was stoned to death for saying what he was saying. And Paul went around wanting to imprison Christians and try and get rid of this message. And yet he has a personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, where he hears the voice of Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? So he does an amazing turnaround. And you can read about it in the New Testament letters. And he says this in Galatians, and I love this. He talks about the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's incredible personal language. It's something that he himself has experienced. So what about you? Have you experienced the love of God for yourself yet? I encourage you to seek a personal experience of God. You see, Uh, be careful what you say see thomas said i will never believe and i think he's being emotional at that point rather than rational or logical he's reacting to the sadness of what had happened but yet a week later he's saying my lord and my god so we have different experiences some people have immediate dramatic experiences some people have like a gradual discovery the important thing is that you yourself have an experience of god it's a bit like what jesus said to Nicodemus, he said to him, he was one of the teachers of the law, but he didn't understand things. He said, you've got to be born again or born from above or born of the spirit. You yourself need a personal encounter with God. And he explains to him, it's a bit like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. And so is with God. God is invisible and there is a mystery with God. But Thomas reminds us that journey of faith is not always straightforward. Sometimes we don't get it. Sometimes we don't want to get it. But God, the, the, God is patient with us. And he loves us so much. And I want to encourage you to keep your heart open to God. Keep listening and learning and responding. You see, faith comes through hearing, but it involves a choice, a personal decision. I want to know more. I want to seek. I want to find out. So I encourage you, don't rule yourself out of the joy, peace and real hope there is in Jesus. Keep coming, listening to what we're going to share in this series, and uh, find out for yourself the amazing truth there is in Jesus. So if you've been watching for a while, and today you're ready to respond to the invitation of Jesus, I want to lead you in a simple prayer of decision, which is uh, a decision to follow Jesus and receive the new gift of life with God. So I'm just going to lead you in this prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything that I know is wrong. Thank you that you died for me on the cross so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. I now receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. So thanks again for tuning in to Hope Online. Keep joining us week by week on this series on real hope, and I trust that God will help you. And if you've got any questions, do feel free to email us. If you've got questions you want to find out, you can email me, rob.golding at hopewinchester.org. Thanks for listening.